hi, it's Arjun with the macro update. It's been a little bit since I've done the video with the slide deck, which will follow. I wanted to highlight this week this macro change we've had from what was a messy energy transition era, the basis for super spiked, to what is now post Ukraine a full blown energy crisis paradigm that we're in. And I think, unfortunately, it is likely to be here for, let's just call it, the remainder of the 2020s. Russia turning into a pariah state is a noticeable change in both the geopolitical and broader macro outlook. And I think it's gonna have some major implications, one of which is uh, the world should uh, clearly favor more US and Canadian oil supply, but what does it mean to get back to that in an environment where both traditional and ESG investors and policy have been firmly aligned against uh, more US and Canadian oil supply. Some of these things are gonna have to change going, going forward. But let me go to the slide deck now and I'll see you all afterwards. Thank you. So prior to Ukraine, we were already on track for a pretty messy energy transition era. It was a motivation to starting super spiked where we had policies that were on track to limit supply in actually good areas, uh, which going to put more dependence on supply from bad areas, and really not anyone doing anything to address the demand side of the equation, especially as it relates to oils. And we were coming out of an era where the sector had been very out of favor. Uh, people did, traditional investors did not want to invest in the oil and gas space, let alone anyone on the ESG side or the climate side. And really everything was conspiring against uh, the type of energy transition that I think one would want to have, one that solves for all aspects of energy and climate, affordability, availability, reliability, security, along with as small of a climate and environmental footprint on po as possible. We were not on track for that pre-Ukraine. You then have this world-changing event of the very tragic invasion ordered by President Putin into Ukraine, and we've now morphed into full-blown energy crisis mode. And it's one of those things, and I'll get into it, it's unlikely to be a short-term crisis. I will characterize it that the 2020s is now going to be an energy crisis era. It was going to be a messy energy transition. We've now got full-blown energy crisis. And the volatility uh, essentially comes in four forms. First is just the normal cycle stuff. The oil business tends to have long-term cycles measured in decades. We had a great decade in the 2000s. We had a really bad decade in the 2010s. And after that bad decade, uh, investors shunned the sector. We were on track for kind of a normal uh, kind of major cyclical improvement. Uh, the second big thing was at some point at the end of last decade, uh, the world, I think, broadly decided we want to have an energy transition into lower carbon forms of energy. And the issue is the uncertainty that that created on the oil demand side, especially after a period of very poor returns on capital for the sector created an additional element of sort of resistance to invest, uh, energy transition demand uncertainty. You would add on top of that all the sort of policy and ESG wildcards that are out there. I think to some degree those have been overstated. On the other hand, they were real and it certainly created disincentives to wanting to invest in traditional uh, oil and gas supply. And then last but certainly not least, uh, geopolitics. Now, geopolitics have always been a feature of energy markets, but Russia, which is the, depending on how you count it, second, third largest producer of crude oil, natural gas, never mind a whole bunch of other commodities and agricultural products, 
uh, has entered as a major, major wild card on the geopolitical side. And I think it bears mentioning that there are no quick fixes. So politicians, uh, activists, advocates, everyone's trying to find that quick silver bullet. They don't exist. Oil and gas in the best of times is a long-term business. Uh, and therefore, what we need are actually long-term solutions. Uh, it's not obvious who the leaders are out there who are going to sort of clearly and, and, and truthfully, I hate that word, but truthfully articulate uh, that really there are no quick fixes. We need some long-term solutions. So let me give the example of U.S. shale pre-Ukraine. Now, last decade, U.S. and I'm talking about shale oil here, it was 70%, 70% of global oil supply growth last decade. That's the starting point. If you liked an environment of low oil prices, which I think just about all consumers do like, uh, U.S. shale was the bulk of why we had such a low price environment. And for consumers, for economic growth, for all these kind of things, the availability, the affordability, the reliability, uh, and really the, the low oil price environment we ended up with in the second half of last decade, shale is the overwhelming reason why that was the case. The problem is, if you're a traditional investor, that shale growth came with a 0% return on capital. And that was a low interest rate environment. But, but zero is sort of an unacceptably <laughs> low number. Um, and, you know, even some of the better companies, you're talking mid-single digit returns on capital as best. And of course, there are a bunch of people that uh, lost money. If you're a traditional investor, you wanted no part of the 0% return on capital business by the end of last decade. You also have this issue of sort of peak oil demand, this question about energy transition and climate change. And we can debate exactly when peak demand is going to occur or not occur. I've, I've personally been in the camp that oil demand is likely to continue to grow through the rest of this decade and into next decade, but others feel differently. And I think if you're an oil company, a board, an investor base, what have you, the uncertainty on if or when oil demand might peak, all that's going to subdue desire to invest in shale oil or traditional oil and gas, again, at a time that profitability was very low. And of course, U.S. public policy, especially since the current administration has taken over, has at least in its rhetoric been very anti-oil. Now, they can say now that that's just rhetoric, and, and it's probably true. I'm not sure the actual policies were going to make a huge difference either way on shale oil supply in particular in this country, in the United States. But there's no doubt that that sort of very anti-oil rhetoric has created a lot of uncertainty in the part of the investment community on what kind of regulations or other things might materialize. Um, you've had this growing ESG movement. Now, I I've been on record as saying substantive ESG is badly needed. Some of the metrics like governance, um, diversity in terms of who's on your board and in your management team to have different perspectives, uh, caring about things like methane are all substantively important things. But of course, uh, that's all fine. It's really been this virtue signaling side of ESG that there's sort of morally good and bad sectors, the, the implication that oil is somehow on the wrong side of that, something I fundamentally disagree with. I think this sort of ESG virtue signaling crowd has created an additional anti-oil sentiment. Uh, and so the unmistakable message, if you're a shale oil company management team or board has been prior to Ukraine, do not invest. Traditional investors don't want it. ESG investors don't want it. The U.S. government doesn't want it. 
Uh, you overinvested last decade. Don't do it anymore. That's been the message up until the invasion of Ukraine. How do things look post-Ukraine? Well, you've got our president calling these companies greedy, excuse me, bastards, and you better invest now. So after telling them we need to stop doing federal drilling and take away your permits, uh, and we want to take away leases and do all these kind of things, now we actually want you to invest. But, and using that little creepy whisper voice, only invest short term, not long term, because we still want to stick to the climate rhetoric. So we don't want to come across as being too pro-shale. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. Um, the current administration has not reconciled sensible energy and climate policy. And I think someone in particular vowed to tell it straight. That is not happening. Now, the other side is no better for different reasons, but they're not in charge right now. The side that is in charge, uh, it's doing no one any favors with the kind of ridiculous rhetoric that we're seeing. You have the highest profile ESG investor signaling that, you know what? I know I've come across as a moralist to try and, you know, raise uh, my ESG ETFs, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm going to moderate the pure disdain I was showing a year or two ago. And, uh, you know, I want to make sure my active funds, funds don't, under, don't underperform too much. So you've seen some moderation. Uh, but again, um, it's a little too little too late. I think the final thing is on the demand uncertainty. Uh, on the one hand, we were on track for better demand coming out of the COVID period. The demand uncertainty has now been replaced by this very volatile oil price environment and concern that maybe we'll have recession. Oil could spike to 150 or 200 or could fall back to 75. And all the volatility that is being created by the geopolitics has kind of replaced the previous uh, energy transition or is are we in peak demand type uncertainty. And so it's still there. Uh, the traditional investors, hey, the sector's gone from 2 to 4%, so there's been a maybe a grudging embrace, uh, but the sector is still not 6, 8, 10% of the S&P. That's when you'll know the traditional oil and gas sector is back. So investors are sort of grudgingly, I'd say, come back in the sector, inflation hedge, geopolitical hedge, all these kind of things. But that pre-Ukraine message to oil company CEOs of don't invest I'm not sure it's really changed, notwithstanding various groups yelling at them uh, or any other thing. It is still a very, very tough environment with significant volatility on the policy side, on the ESG side, and just on the fundamental side to desire. It's not None of that's going to make you desire to crank up your CapEx. So I want to talk about Russia, Ukraine, energy transition, and what I think are some myths and some perspectives that I have. I mean, first and foremost... I don't view it that you're trying to choose between energy security and climate. Now, previously, we had an issue with climate-only type perspectives from at least some large portion of the current administration and activists that are out there. And it's good that we're recognizing the need to solve for all attributes of energy. But we're not choosing between energy security and climate. We need to do all of it. We need availability, affordability, reliability, and energy security with as small of a climate and environmental footprint as possible. And I do think some of the newer technologies will help towards improving energy security. And I think it's going to be good that they're not going to be viewed as just CO2 reduction technologies, but also enhancing energy security. Are our climate objectives being pushed to the right because of the Ukraine invasion? I, I actually don't think so. It, we were not on track previously 
to have a healthy energy transition. It was a messy energy transition era that we were in. So again, uh, people might be upset that they now calls for more shale oil, but we always needed it, right? A healthy energy transition era is one where you actually have a chance to move forward on the full spectrum of objectives. So I, I would push back that somehow the climate objectives have been pushed to the right. Some people will say more oil and gas doesn't square with climate. And then this is really the pushback that I kind of take the most objection to. It depends where the oil and gas is coming from. We would rather have more oil from the United States and Canada than from places like Russia or for that matter, Iran. Uh, and I don't see how that's not glaringly obvious. And the sort of grudging, well, invest short-term, don't invest long-term rhetoric is just a bunch of nonsense. There's no forecast for 2050 oil demand that is below current, uh, let alone expected US and Canadian oil supply. Uh, these should be the last barrels produced and I'll get back into that towards the end of this, uh, this slide deck. Um, one of the best ways we can reduce dependence on Russia is through U.S. and Canadian oil and LNG, right? There aren't short-term solutions. We should need a long-term investment program here. What policy steps could the Biden administration take? I mean, first would be coming clean. Stop going from the keep it in the ground mentality to you're just a bunch of greedy guys, invest more, but only on a short term. It's, it's, it's ridiculous, right? So take steps that recognize we're trying to solve for both energy availability and some of the climate goals, and you can do both. We're not getting that from any of our policymakers. And again, the other side is just as bad, just in the opposite direction. It's not about gutting our environmental regulations. That's not what's needed either. We might need some streamlining for permits. I, I would agree with that. But it's not about gutting or uh, moving away from climate objectives per se. It's recognizing that we're more likely to achieve them through healthy, through robust U.S. and Canadian oil and gas supply. So one of the biggest changes that has come out of the invasion of Ukraine is this question of whether Russia is now a pariah state. And what does that mean? Uh, the track record, and I'll show it in, in the next slide, is not good for oil production once you've become a pariah state. Now, Russia is very different than the examples I'll show, which are Iran, Venezuela, uh, Libya and Iraq, uh, you know, Russia actually has some uh, very big differences. Its independent uh, major oils are distinct from maybe the single state-owned companies that you have in some of these other countries. It just provides a degree of separation that I think is very important. Uh, Russia is also a major producer of crude oil and natural gas, as well as other industrial and agricultural commodities. So there are a number of differences between Russia and some of the less successful pariah states. And I think the question out there is really, how long will it take for Russian oil supply to fall off? To what degree will it fall off? These are the kind of things we're trying to figure out. So pariah states, they are not reliable suppliers. So this is Iran. This is a liquids number for those of you familiar with the crude oil figures. Uh, Iran was pushing 6 million barrels a day in the 1970s. You had the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s. Uh, you then had, obviously, the U.S. sanctions and all of that challenging situation. And they've, I mean, it's, well, it's uh, what, 40, 45 years since the Iranian Revolution, and production is still well below the 1970s levels. Uh, look at Venezuela, growing robustly pre-President Hugo Chavez. 
since he took over. And of course, he's no longer the leader. But regardless, the country and the oil industry has been decimated. So Venezuela's supply from over 3 million barrels a day to about half a million barrels a day. Venezuela's total production is about what U.S. shale can grow on an annual basis. This is the best example why I think we should all be pro-capitalism and anti-socialism. Libya, pre-Gaddafi, 1.6, 1.7 million barrels a day. Post-Gaddafi, um, they've struggled to stay above a million barrels a day. And somehow, and to my big surprise, the big pariah state winner is actually Iraq, which is the only country to actually make new highs. Now, it's come well after Gulf War II. The recovery that it's at is still well below what everyone predicted post-Gulf Gulf War II. They were forecasted 8, 10, 12 million barrels a day from Iraq. We're nowhere near that. Uh, and of course, even in their case, it took a long time to get back to those 1970s highs. I want to switch into this concept of good barrels versus bad barrels. And I know the diehard climate people uh, believe that all barrels are bad, even if you have that view. Okay, oil demand today is above zero. Today, absolutely, there is a difference between good and bad barrels. And the better or the sooner more people recognize that, I think the better the chance we get to uh, healthier transition policy. So Russia clearly indicates that when you try and limit supply, for example, North Sea in Europe comes to mind, uh, even shale in Canada come to mind you end up with more bad barrels. That's not a good thing, right? And these sort of domestic climate-only policies, when people think that we're only trying to solve for less CO2, it is the catalyst, especially the way a lot of this climate accounting works. There's nothing worse than scope three and these nationally determined contributions that is leading people to limit their oil and gas business. And it's beyond the scope of this video to go into the accounting challenges, but they create some really bad policy objectives, especially for global commodities like oil. When your NDC includes your domestic production, there's a motivation to limit it, and that does not make sense. It's bad policy, it's bad accounting, and it's leading to bad barrels. None of that is good. Um, I, I, I don't even understand how there's even a question that US and Canada is better than Russia. How is there even a debate? Even again, if you have the view that all barrels are bad, which I know a lot of the diehard climate folks believe, within that, we still should rank order U.S. and Canada better than Russia. And I'm going to throw Iran in there as well. And I will argue that having more oil and natural gas production from the United States and Canada is going to be a good thing and lead to a healthy energy transition era than we're currently on track for. In my opinion, there's a clear path to 10 million barrels a day of net exports by 2030. Today, if you look at liquid supply and demand for US and Canada together, they're about balanced. That's from you know a huge deficit, a huge net import situation, of course, mostly in the United States. If you go back a decade to 2008, 2009, we've gone from in round numbers, minus 10 million barrels a day, uh, in, in, in other words, big net imports, to balance today, to I think there's a path to 10 million barrels a day by 2030. Um, on the 10, we're probably on track to do about half of that, despite <laughs> despite all the hostility and challenges from our government, and the Canadian government and all the ESG folks and so forth. 
with just a little bit of help. And a little bit of help, by the way, comes on both encouraging more supply, especially out of Canada. That's the piece that needs some help on the on the pipeline side, as well as, frankly, some motivation to reduce demand. We've had this huge issue of SUVs offsetting our fuel economy gain. High prices will cure some of that. A little bit of policy help would, would, would go a long way. More oil supply out of the United States, that I think is on track to happen. More oil supply out of Canada, that's going to need the pipeline obstructionism to be called out is bad. It's bad for energy security. It's bad for availability and affordability. And I'd argue it's bad for the climate if all you end up with is more Russian and Iranian barrels. Um, and again, I think that we could do a lot to reform CAFE standards and to help mute demand for a given level of economic growth. And the ultimate goal of 10 million barrels a day in net exports is to have the opportunity to physically displace about 10 million barrels a day of net exports out of Russia and Iran. Those barrels will still exist, even if the production falls a bit. It would be great if the United States, Canada, and their allies no longer had to physically depend on Russia and Iran, and that is entirely possible. And here's the graph, I probably should have pulled it up much sooner, that shows how we've gone from big deficits a decade ago, thanks to shale as well as Canada, Canada to a balanced market. And I think this could be one of the big solutions to a healthier energy transition era, one that allows for availability, affordability, reliability, security, and with still key, let's reduce our carbon content, let's reduce our environmental impacts, all has much greater chances of success with healthy U.S. and Canadian oil and gas. So I'll end this video on a personal note. At Super Spiked, I try to be nonpartisan and non-ideological, with the sole exception of being pro-capitalism, anti-socialism. And I know in this video I did speak about Biden and his policy, but he's the president. It is what it is, and I'm not on board with a lot of the rhetoric. But for that matter, I do not like what I see from the other side either as it relates to energy and climate and environmental policy. And I think the net of all that is the answer is not in politicians. We are not going to have a better or healthier energy transition era because politicians come up with some magical answer. The answer does not lie with global elites. It almost certainly does not lie with the leading financial services CEOs who are trying to sell ESG ETFs, that's for sure. The answer lies with regular people. I have tried to start a Substack. It is consistent with my previous career as a research analyst. I think it's not enough for people to just complain on Facebook or whatever social media platform to their small circle of friends. And I think for those of you that do care and know about energy and environmental and climate policies and what is logical and what is illogical, I would encourage everyone to figure out their way to speak out. Hope everyone has a great Easter Passover weekend or whatever holiday you celebrate, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.